welcome to the Open Paddock Rallycast presented by Oz Rally Pro. This is episode number 119, where we chatted with co-driver Bryce Proceus. Bryce is one of American Rallying's greatest proponents, helping spread the rally gospel to anyone that will hear. In this episode, recorded back in March, we talked with Bryce about how he got started in rallying and his amazing press on regardless story where he decided to compete for the first time in Rally Moto at Sandblast. So join us around the campfire with a cold can of Gravel Slayer IPA at the virtual rally pub we call the Rallycast. So have you missed us? Well, we've missed you. Well, not all of you, because some of you we got to see rather recently at the Olympus Rally. But um, we're obviously very late in getting an episode released. We actually tried to post one just before Olympus, and we discovered that it had some serious audio flaws. Derek's software was on the fritz, and apparently it really didn't like us uh, interviewing the Gelsaminos or talking to Leon Jordan after 100 Acre Wood. Not 100% sure what the cause was. We'll try and resurrect that episode at some future point, but uh, that, that was a challenge with that stuff. And of course, speaking of Olympus, that was the event that Derek is also a organizer and a volunteer, uh, puts together all the goodie bags for all the, all the volunteers and whatnot, which is a huge job, just organizing all that, putting it all together. And so thank you, Derek, for all of that. He even gave me one too, so some great little goodies in there. And then for me at Olympus, I was busy up there uh, doing some live streaming. So I hope some of you caught some of that uh, footage. It was a ton of fun. Haven't been in front of a camera for a little while, and I thought it turned out pretty good. So this was uh, on Olympus's own Facebook page that we did the live stream, and we went through Park Expose, got some great interviews, chats with people that we haven't chatted with before, with some of the newer teams that are out there. And (laughs) if you haven't heard uh, Texas Dave and some of his vocal impressions, it's worth it just to watch that one from the uh, Saturday, being out at the Park Expose in downtown Shelton. That, that was just a joy. He's so much fun. That makes me wonder, maybe we should try and merge some of that audio from those kinds of things into this podcast. If you guys would want to hear it, I don't know. It's an idea, uh, something to get just a little bit more content for y'all if you weren't able to catch it from the live stream. And I, I know for me, podcasts are always easier because it's not always easy to catch video. While you can podcast, you can listen to it while you're doing other things. So I know it's old content, but you know, it might be worth a listen. Anyway, since this recorded, uh, Bryce not only did that crazy sandblast event that you're going to hear about, but then he also jumped in as a driver and competed his first stage rally event doing the McCreary Gravel Rally in Kentucky and finished second. So this guy is just uh, moving on to whatever he can get his hands on, sit in, drive, ride. It doesn't matter. Bryce is uh, going full bore into this rally thing, and his story is just so much fun. I hope you enjoy it. And I did mention the Gravel Slayer IPA. That is a brand new beer from Cascadia Brothers, which is in Vancouver, just across the river from me here in the greater Portland area. And they're the ones making an official beer for the Oregon Trail Rally. So if you don't know about the uh, Gravel Slayer IPA, we'll be posting about it here in the area or if somehow can get a hold of it. It's bound to be tasty. Our guys even helped with the recipe the Friday before uh, Olympus. Some of the folks that were, you know, weren't up there doing recce uh, were able to go in there and uh, help with the recipe for it. So I thought that was kind of cool. Anyways, without further ado, now on to the show listening to Bryce Proceus right after these words from our supporters. Go. Five right short over crest into second small crest 40. Full left plus nips. Hi, this is Alex and Rhiannon Gelsomino from Oz Rally Pro, advanced rally training. Are you new to rally or have you been rallying many years? No matter what your experience, we can progress you further. 
Our classes are team training, driver pace note training or co-driver training that are tailored to each individual or team. Email osrallypro at gmail.com for further details. And welcome back to the Rallycast. I have with us our special guest this week. It is Bryce Procius. Welcome to the Open Paddock Rallycast, man. Hey, what's up, Mike? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's good to have you on, man. Uh, you know, we've chatted at events and whatnot, but I think it's the first time I had you on the Rallycast officially. This is my first time on yeah, on the Open Paddock Rallycast. I'm, I'm really excited for it. Well, now for for the first question that we always have to ask, what are you drinking? Tonight, I made myself a Negroni, which is a very old school, old fashioned kind of cocktail. Ooh, nice. It's equal parts gin, sweet vermouth, and either Campari or Capoletti for that kind of like... I don't know, kind of floral, grassy kind of flavor. Um, and I, I usually I give it like an extra like three, four dashes of bitters. Ooh, yep. I'm, I'm liking this idea. I might have to try this one. It's one of my three favorite uh, cocktails up there with uh, the Dark and Stormy and the uh, Manhattan. Classic. You, you like the old oldie style stuff. I like it. Yes, I do. I, I am. A, I'm not a cocktail snob, but I just appreciate really good really good cocktails i'm with you man i just like to try a lot of different things too and uh yeah mm. I, I i got hooked on the old-fashioned thing yeah i, I saw one just you know somebody on, on some tv show somebody had to have a norm like that looks interesting went to a bar you know soon after that and went and tried i'm like where have these been all my life <laughs> <laughs> anytime i go to a rally i always try to make sure i sample a cocktail from one of the bars in the local area um and then obviously you got to have, you know, beer with your buds. But yeah, I, I always got to see if there's something new and interesting that I haven't heard about yet or someone's new, interesting take on a cocktail. I don't know. I like to explore. Yeah, get that regional feel. Yeah, exactly. Well, for me, it is only 4 p.m. here on the West Coast. So I am unfortunately very unimaginative and still drinking coffee. And there was just the time change as well. So, yeah, you know, brain's not quite all the way there yet. <laughs> Your, your body still says it's three o'clock, so. That's yeah. right. <laughs> but, you know, in, in the Pacific Northwest, we are coffee fiends, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I literally drink coffee all day long. It The funny thing is it does nothing to me as far as, like, caffeine-wise. I become immune to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to be at that level. Um, so I used to drink uh, two Monsters and, like, a, a two-liter of Mountain Dew in a shift uh, years ago. Wow. And would still be able to go home and immediately fall asleep. Um, since then, I've developed a hypersensitivity to caffeine, and I cannot do that anymore. So one cup of coffee, and my heart is racing, and it's real bad. So, <laughs> well, yeah. well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you're supposed to stay off it. Your body's telling you something. It's a sign. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening to my body's <laughs> little cues here. So, well, I, I of course I I said where I'm where I'm at, but uh, where is it you call home, man? So I am born and raised in Michigan. I am a full fledged Michigander. I've, um, born in the Jackson area and then uh, grew up mostly in the Grand Rapids area. Um, now I live just about 25 minutes outside of Grand Rapids, the northwest, um, up in the Nuevo area, if you're familiar at all with Michigan. I've literally ne- never lived in another state other than Michigan. Like, this has been my home my whole life. I can relate to that. Uh, I'm born and raised Oregonian and visited other places. I'm like, that's nice to visit. Don't want to live anywhere else. Thanks. There's only been a few other places that have made me go, hey, maybe I could leave Michigan and move somewhere. And actually, Oregon was one of those places. Um, and then another place would be maybe South Carolina. But mm. yeah, I, I don't personally like the cold very much. I, I can't I can't really handle that. The only thing that the cold and the snow is good for is snowdrift rally. So <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, we get the mild of everything out here. But the problem is, it's like just this constant drizzle rain, at least used to. Oh, climate change stuff. It seems like it's all changed now. So, but I don't know if that's temporary or permanent, but uh, now we have like 100 degree summers. That's like, I'm not used to that. Yeah. Neat. <laughs> yeah, a, exactly. 
<laughs> well, what got you into rallying, man? So uh, I, I found out about rally in, I want to say late 2012 or early 2013. A friend of mine had shared Ken Block's Jim Connor 3 video on his Facebook. And I clicked on it. I was like, man, what is this stuff? Like, this is crazy. Like, what are these cars? Like, that's a Ford Fiesta and it's all wheel drive and has all this power. He's doing donuts all over the place. Like, I had no concept of it. So I just like started, you know, looking up everything that I could. And I was like, oh, this Ken Block guy, he does like races on these cars. And oh, there's one that's like eight hour drive away from me. I'm going to go to it. So I made all the plans and like figured out a hotel and everything else called off one day of work on Friday so that I could make it down, um, left in the, like, as soon as I got out of work on Thursday, which is around 5 PM and, uh, hopped in the car with my wife at the time. And we drove straight through the night all the way down to Salem. Um, actually we were staying in Steelville for that, that year. Um, that was the year that they had a really ridiculous ice storm. That was when hundred acre wood was still in February. Well, the drive through the night was the opposite of uneventful. Um, we came up on a jackknife semi truck that was, had slid all over the place because of the ice storm. And then a, uh, somebody in a Mustang had like slid into the trailer, um, and like half decapitated their car and they, they made it out. Okay. But like it it blocked up the road for probably a good two hours. We were stuck there, made it all the way down. And the eight hour drive turned into like over 12 hours, made it to Steelville at like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, then just like slept for like an hour and a half. And then went out and ch- checked out park expose and then did, uh, the first stages. And then while we were out there, um, I actually made friends with, uh, one of the locals who is now a good friend of mine, Lonnie Irvin. He was like, Hey man, like, while we're here, like, you know, like there's some few other spectator spots that we should know that, you know, we should go check out and they're not like officially on the map, but we know where they're at. The there's usually marshals there and they're cool with us hanging out there. I was like, sweet. So the next day on Saturday, we went and did that. And first pass was awesome. Watched a bunch of cars. And then he was like, if we take this map or this, this road we see on Google maps and we go out this route, it looks like we can hit a gas station in about 10 minutes or so. Then we can run out there and get like some snacks and drinks and stuff like that. And it was off the rally course because they weren't going to close the, or reopen the rally course in between the cars because it's two runnings of the stage. Um, so we were just going to take this other offshoot and in about a mile and a half, this offshoot road turned into uh, like a Jeep trail. Sounds like what Google maps will do to you. Yes. <laughs> yes, especially Google Maps circa 2013. Right. So <laughs> then uh, he was in um, with his buddy and they had like a um, two wheel drive Mitsubishi. Um, I think it was a Gallant, one of the early 2000s Gallants. And I was in my Audi A4. So they're just trying to bomb down this Jeep path. It's all covered in ice and everything else. And we go another like mile or so. And then we come up to uh, a cattle guard like gate and we're like, had almost no cell service or anything checking to Google maps and was like, um, how do we get through here? Because this Google maps says this is a road. And so one of the guys in the car hopped out, ran up and ran across the field and walked up to this farmer's house because this gate ended in a pasture. And the guy was real, real nice. Just confused as all heck as to how the heck we got back there. <laughs> and and <laughs> it's like, you're where? We're like, we're at the gate at your back pasture. He's like, how? I was like, can we just drive through your field real quick and get out of here? And he's like, sure. So we start driving through this field and the Gallant just could not make it up the hills. So I had to like push his Gallant with my Audi up the hills and we ended up making it back. We didn't, didn't make it back to the stage, but we went out, 
you know, got food and snacks and went back into town and watched the finish and all the cars and everything. So really, I only got to see about like three stages for that first event. And it was, again, quite the experience. It was a good, you know, good way for me to learn the whole press on regardless spirit of uh, what rally is. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a, a lot of people, especially those maybe, maybe the, the older of us, remember kind of more of that adventure type way of going to see rally. You had all of that wrapped into your first visit. I did. Yeah, it just was nonstop. <laughs> so I got the bug and was like, all right, this is really, really cool. I need to go see more of this. So I looked up, this was at the time uh, the sanctioning body was Rally America and found out, okay, in October, there's an event in the Upper Peninsula. It's also about eight hours away and I'm going to go to that. So that was my first time going to Lake Superior Performance Rally. And then that became my favorite event and I've not missed it a single year since. Well, fast forward to next year, I was like full on hooked and basically became a semi-professional rally spectator. I went to six out of the eight championship events that Rally America held that year. Wow. Just just to spectate. Like most people like, oh, there's a rally. Like I might go spectate it once this year. I went to six out of the eight, like all over the country and even like flew out to Oregon to go watch Oregon Trail Rally that year. That was 2014. And then while I was um, at LSPR again that fall, I went to go up to uh, a spectator point and the stage had already been closed because zero car had already come through. And there was a control marshal working at the finish that was um, like, hey, man, he's like, you know, I can't just let you up there. He's like, do you want to stand here with me and like help make sure that no one else comes up and, you know, we'll just, you know, talk and shoot the shit about. Unofficial volunteer. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I can give you a shirt or anything and we'll just, you know, just chat rally and stuff like that. And uh, oh, by the way, my name is Adam Van Dam. <laughs> So that was where I met Adam. And then uh, we exchanged numbers. Then uh, fast forward a couple months to Snowdrift Rally. I texted him. I was like, hey, are you going to be volunteering at Snowdrift Rally? And he's like, yeah, I'll be there. I was like, sweet. Can I volunteer with you? So went and I volunteered the entire weekend, like all the same Marshall points with him and just really got to know him a lot better. You know, went to a few more rallies. And Question just real quick. Yeah. How much had you learned about how the sport actually works at this point, right? I mean, you went, you found, you saw the stuff on Gymkhana and whatnot, and then you wanted to go to this event, you know, down 100 Acre Wood the first time. Yeah. Between then and then LSPR and and then traveling to all these, when did you actually understand exactly? Because I mean, our sport's pretty technical. I mean, you as a co-driver now um, yeah. know this better than anybody, but when was yeah. it that it's like, oh, I get it. This is how it works. I had... Uh... I think it was, it was sometime in 2014. Um, it was when I started to make a few more friends, um, in the sport because like people coming out and spectating just for fun. Like I said, it, most people will just go to like the one that's local to the area. And when you start showing up to rallies consistently and you like go and walk through the service park, which is an, another thing that most spectators don't do. They don't come and like look at all the cars and talk to the teams. Well, there's a, a friend of mine who was competing at the time. Uh, actually, he was a um, a service crew member for FY Racing, Brenton Kelly. Oh, yeah. Love Brenton. Yeah, he's a great guy. He came up to me. He's like, hey, man. He's like, what team are you with? And I was like, me? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, I just spectate a lot. And he's like, he's like, but I've seen you at like five rallies. And I was like, yeah. He's like, you're you're coming to all these just on your own, just to watch, like you're spending all this money and all this time just to come watch us race. And he, he was like, he, he was excited about it, but he was also just flabbergasted because like nobody else does that. Like, yeah. Cause it is a big event, uh, you know, investment. I mean, travel costs are, are a big part of our sport. Yeah. 
Exactly. Like every single event between hotel, fuel, everything else. I mean, you're, you're hundreds of dollars in just to spectate a rally. Which, which is also why we love our volunteers, by the way, yes, because they're doing them. that just to come out and work. Exactly. And they don't even get to go to all the spectator spots. Exactly. Yeah. I've been in their shoes before. I've volunteered at quite a few rallies in the past, and it's a huge commitment. I'll hit, I'll hit on that later um, with a story from Snowdrift Rally years ago. Um, in talking to Brenton and then in talking to Adam later on, like just started to get a, a little bit of a feel for it. Um, I understood you know, what co-drivers did in the car. I didn't fully understand like all the timed everything in between each stages and all that. Um, but I had a pretty general good idea based off of a few other articles that I'd read and just other things that were like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to nerd out about this motorsport that is the nerdiest form of motorsport in the world. Right. It fit my personality well. So I, I kind of just did a lot of self-education and a lot of reading. After spectating quite a few events in 2014, I actually wrote an article for Jalopnik about how to spectate at rallies and gave people like a good idea of like where to find information and how to plan your routes and what to bring with you and all of that stuff. Cause I was, I was just so stoked about rally. And I, I was even just, I was just a spectator and I was just trying to make sure everyone else could find out about this so they could go enjoy the thing that I loved. So midway in 2015, I know it wasn't 2015. It was 2016. Sorry. It was like maybe like early, late spring. I get a text from Adam and he goes, Hey man, do you want to go racing? And I said, uh, yes, yes, please. Yes. Uh, he's like, I'm going to enter summer snowdrift. He's like, so he's like, I got this old rally car that used to be my dad's. He's like, it's nothing fancy or anything special, but it's just, you know, Mark one Volkswagen rabbit running a, you know, 1.8 liter and like just, regular old Bilstein struts. And that was it. Like that was the rally car I had a skid plate in a cage. And, and that was it. And he's like, so we'll just go have fun. So I went up to their farm up in rock, Michigan and took a few spins around the farm and just kind of got a little bit comfortable with, you know, how things worked. And he's like, this first rally is like, really, you're just going to get to basically enjoy the view from the passenger seat. Cause it's a tulip rally, which, you know, it, you don't really read notes. You just kind of giving people directions that are giving your driver directions at, you know, major intersections or warning about a, you know, major corner coming up and then directions on transit and then time card stuff. So it was a really good way for me to kind of get, um, a good kind of easy break in, which I, I really highly recommend tulip rallies for new co-drivers. It's a, it's a really way, great way to get a little bit of experience and get your feet wet. So for this rally, Adam had no comms in the car, like nothing like this is like, almost not even a full rally car at this point. Like there's so many things of what people would consider necessary for it to be a rally car. And his didn't have that. It was just like, yeah, it's a cage car. Let's go race. <laughs> so what I would do is whenever there was something significant or major coming up, I would like reach over tap on the dash and the number of taps that I would hit the dash with was how much of a caution it should be. And then I would point a direction to give him a heads up. <laughs> yes. This, this is how I started co-driving. <laughs> so <laughs> we did that race and then I made friends with uh, a few other people in the service area. I went and actually did, um, borrowed the gear from Adam that I had used for summer snowdrift and went the next weekend down to, uh, show me rally and, uh, did my first running of that. And then he was like, let's go do Lake Superior performance rally, which I was like, yes, this is my favorite race. I love this event. I love the area. Houghton and Hancock are beautiful lawns. It's all awesome up there. I was like, I was so stoked. Then I get up to his farm. Um, like 
this is I think a day before we were supposed to leave for Recce. So I drove up there and I was just gonna spend one night there, then we were gonna drive up to Houghton and then do Recce the next day and then the race. Well, we go out um the day that I get up there and take the car out for a spin, make one lap of his little test track around the farm, and the car comes in, it's just smoking like crazy. Just just smoke everywhere. Um and then it started spitting and sputtering. I'm like, oh no. Then started pulling things apart and like maybe it's the distributors like you know like way too crazy advanced and it's running too hot or like and, and then just find tons and tons of oil blow by this was, it was just so bad well turns out cylinder number three had five psi of compression it was just toast yeah and this is like the day before we're supposed to leave oh no adam's like well we've got about a dozen old volkswagen sitting around here at the farm in various states of running or not running. He's like, there's gotta be something that we can make work. So we started, we immediately just get in the barn, pull the motor, start going through it. Okay. Yeah. This is junk. We can't use anything out of this. So we start looking around and it gets to like 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. We're walking through his barns just with a flashlight. All right. There's a, you know, there's a 1.6 liter. I pulled that out of a car because X blew up or, you know, this went bad. And oh, there's a 1.8 liter, but I think that one spun a bearing, you know, and just wandering around and it's like, hey, we found here's this 1.6 liter, but I can't remember if it works or not. Well, that's worth a shot. Like, it's all we've got right now. You know, we're just tired and like, let's just let's just try to see make it work. It's like your own like uh, pick apart. Exactly. <laughs> place just in the in the bar. Exactly. It's just <laughs> a sort of auto junkyard, but you <laughs> it's his farm. <laughs> and but it was just a bare block. It was a, it wasn't a, well, it, had, it was a bare short block. It didn't have a cylinder head on it at all. It was just a block cranking pistons and rods. So like we, we need to find a cylinder head that we know is good. Wandering around, this is hitting like, you know, midnight, 1am in the morning. And we're just, just so tired. And this like kept pulling ones apart, pulling valve covers off. Oh, the cams are all rusty on this one. Oh, this one's like got a broken like cam cap and just, just, Everything we found was bad until we came upon this one that was sitting in the dirt, just like cylinder head sitting directly in the dirt, no valve cover on it, but it had been, it had been dropped there when it was still wet with oil and all the dust from the farm collected on all of the oil that was sitting on the camshafts. And what that did was it created this like thick grime that rust couldn't penetrate. Like the water couldn't get through into it and it wasn't rusty underneath all of that. We're like, all right. Here we go. Here's our cylinder head. <laughs> Let's go racing on this. So we brought it in the barn and I sat there until three o'clock in the morning with a jar of diesel fuel and a toothbrush, scrubbing the grime off of this camshaft. Lo and behold, everything seemed to be fine. No bent valves, nothing. It was, it was all good. I'm like, all right, calling it a night. We'll get up early in the morning, put this thing together. Got a couple hours of sleep threw the motor together. He reused a head gasket that was off of another engine that he just coated on both sides with Loctite high tech gasket sealant. And <laughs> also not advisable, not advisable. <laughs> um, and then through reused cylinder head bolts and a bunch of other stuff in there, threw it together, bolted it to the trans, dropped it in the car, took it for a couple spins around the farm. Everything ran. We're like, all right, we missed recce, but we'll just run off of the Jumbo notes that they provided and we'll go race. And so then the entire rest of the event, went flawlessly but there was a funny little quirk that happened in the middle of us so remember i said there's no comms in the car right well we put a 1.6 liter and before the car had a 1.8 liter a 1.8 out of a mark ii gti was a little noisier it had a louder exhaust note 
And we were midway through, anyway, we were midway through a stage on like the first day, about halfway through the day. And I'm doing my hand signals and tapping the dash for the whole rally. Like this is, this is how I've been going. And I tapped the dash and pointed a direction. And Adam says to me, Hey, was that this? And pointed to the right or was it this? And pointed to the left. And I said, it was this and pointed to the left. And he goes, Hey, wait a minute. I can hear you. (laughs) 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 And I said, well, do you want me to start calling notes? And he's like, sure. (laughs) So while we're tearing through the woods at like 60 miles an hour, in the upper peninsula, I just started reading notes to him. And that was how I got my introduction to calling notes in a rally car. Baptism by fire. My goodness. Yep. Like literally like had to know my spot and just be constantly like on top of things. And like, I was not good at it at the beginning, I will say. Um, No one's good at anything when they first start. And I had, you know, my hiccups here and there, but we kept it on the road and we ended up finishing and we got to the finish line and I look over at Adam and I was like, I, you know what? I had absolutely no faith in that engine all weekend long. And he just stopped what he was doing. And he looked at me and just busted out laughing. He's like, why? And I was like, because that's not how you build an engine. He's like, that's how Youpers build an engine. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. Actually, (laughs) that engine ended up going on to do six more events. That's impressive. Yeah. And it's not like you guys were careful or nice to it either. No. Uh, we thrash on that motor. It is at red line as much as possible. I mean, it's a little anemic 1.6 liter that on a good day is maybe like, I don't know, 75 horsepower. Like you need every ounce of it. And in, in a front wheel drive car, like it's just all momentum driving. So, but, so that was my introduction to co-driving. And w- was Adam, uh, an experienced driver before that? Was that, or was that his also first rally is with you? He had done one rally previous to summer snowdrift. Um, he had gone and done, I think it was Namaji trail or something like that. Um, and did not finish. Um, another friend of mine, Ian Holmes, cold driving for him at that rally. Yes. Right. And, uh, so Ian and him, they didn't finish that race. And so summer snowdrift was his first rally that he finished. And it was my first rally period. And then we had, you know, pretty, pretty decent luck from then on out. You know, according to EWC results, you've done 38 events since that is correct yes uh i think i'm i'm just shy of 40 events right now i'm gonna i'm gonna hit almost 50 this year total um after everything's all said and done so and obviously you've been doing this for for several years now you know uh, gaining experience and whatnot and i've seen you sit with both kind of novice and more experienced drivers yeah which one's easier to work with i mean i know me as an it guy sometimes the people that know absolutely nothing are the best because they you know stop and ask questions instead of, oh, here, let me do this. And you're like, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> you know, that mindset that's a little different. Yeah. So um, for me, it was, uh, you know, it was in some ways a, a bit of a journey because uh, like I said, 2016 was my first event. Um, I did three that year, um, all in the span of like, you know, a month and a half or less. Then in 2017, I didn't do any um, as far as I remember. And then 2018, I ended up doing 100 Acre Wood Rally with Adam. And then, um, so I I'd rode pretty consistently at the beginning with just Adam. Um, I'd only had that one bonus event with Andy Goss uh, at, at Show Me Rally. So I kind of developed a bit of my skill set around, you know, working with Adam. And then I'm um, trying to remember who was the first team that asked me. I should pull up EWRC just to check it so I don't misspeak, like, speak here. So basically what I did was I started having other teams, hey, like, our co-driver like got sick or can't make it to this rally. And they just like, Hey, like, you know, we've seen you done a couple events. You have your own gear. 
would you be willing to hop in the car with us? And I was like, yeah, our rally's always good. I'm down. Like, let's do this. And then from there, I kind of became a super sub almost <laughs> pretty much. Yes. Uh, I call it like a freelance co-driver. Like I just, yeah, you know, whoever, whoever needs me, I'm like, I'm down. Um, and now at this point, like all my events pretty much get booked either end of December or January uh, of that year. Like I just, everyone is pretty much calling me real early on to get me booked up. And like you were saying, you, you've just been all over the country doing these things and I can see why you're memorable though. I mean, you, you do have your Instagram, which is, uh, the rally stash, That's the rally stash. Um, so, so it, it does, uh, have you stand out with, with your, um, very well manicured, um, <laughs> mustache that you've had. So, um, what's funny about that is, um, I started my Instagram as the rally staff back when I was still spectating. And I just was like, you know, taking pictures at rallies and posting them on that. And then, you know, sharing any rally news that I could find. And then it kind of turned into, Oh, I'm, I'm actually competing. And now a bunch of people follow me just to watch my, you know, stories and, and posts and stuff I get from events. So checking my EWC results. Um, it was actually, uh, Chris Baraboo who was the uh, first driver to give me another chance. And Chris was a really fun ride. Still a good friend of mine. He uh, is a former uh, motocross rider. So he had a ton of experience on loose surfaces, reading the road, weight transfer in a car and all of that stuff. <clears throat> so going from a naturally aspirated front wheel drive golf to a pretty high horsepower and a Subaru was a really big change. And that pushed me a lot to kind of develop my skills. And then from there, I, I started, you know, expanding outward into, I started co-driving with Nathan Coulter, who I'm doing uh, a rally with um, this weekend and uh, a few other people. Um, I think the most of the drivers that I rode with in a single year was I hit six different drivers in a single year. Yeah. Starting in 2018, as I really started to pick up and do a lot more events. And then I've been doing consistently at least six events a year. Um, last two years have both been over 10 events a year. Um, I've got several pretty pretty exciting events this year uh, i'm really stoked about with uh, a couple uh, new drivers to me uh, i'm not going to spill the beans on that yet but both of them are pretty cool people that's that's kind of my my approach on is that like i like to ride with the same people as much as possible but i also really like to ride with new people from time to time so to get back to your original question of who do i prefer to work with novices versus experienced drivers that's kind of shifted and changed as i've competed um like at the beginning i felt like a total noob i had the whole imposter syndrome thing going on i was like i am not experienced enough to be here like everyone else here is so much better than me um so i always preferred to ride with you know novices then you know and then i, I felt like i was on a pretty equal level you know like both of us were making mistakes but we were having a good time and then over time i've now started to uh, shift a little bit more to I, I do prefer more often than not to work with experienced drivers. I do have a, a a newer driver that I've been working with a little bit last year. His name is Brian Heidseek. You got a beautiful BMW. Yeah, 318 Ti, the short stubby E36s. Uh, that's a, a properly built car. The things that I feel like I enjoy about working with novice drivers is I get the opportunity to teach them about rally. There's you know, a lot of things that go into like understanding when to go into time controls and like when you need to listen to me, how timing works and all of that fun stuff that drivers, even though they don't have to keep track of it, they still have to care. Mm -hmm. Like I also get the opportunity to teach drivers how to, you know, read a road and describe it in terms of notes. Um, because I am now 100% like write my own notes. I don't take Jemba's or anything like that unless it's the only option available. It's interesting how, you know, American rallying has changed so much to that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, Jemba was the thing. Um, and some of it's still offered Jemba, and, and not, they're not bad, but no. it seems like once folks have gotten to do their own notes for a couple of events, they're like, I'd never go back. Exactly. And it's, you, you start to develop your own shorthand. Like we have, you know, obviously Jemba and all of that stuff is its own like specific language. And it's a very, you know, finely tuned thing that this means this, this means that. And then sometimes there's other verbiage that you can use to describe the same thing, but it, you know, it, it has a different sound to it or, um, you know, it has a, a better descriptor in your mind, like, just depending on the driver. One of the things that I personally, I like to use is Jemba always, you know, puts a question or an exclamation mark and they call it a caution. Well, I always describe it as a care. And the reason is, is caution is two syllables. When you're going through the woods at 70, 80 miles an hour, caution, two syllables, takes up more time to say than care. And care, you can repeat twice within the same amount of time and really get their attention. It's also a brighter sounding, you know, word care. Um, it's very percussive and, and bright and caution just kind of sounds more muddy and garbled. You know, that's one of the things that I, you know, use over Jemba and there's like, I'll, I'll use different descriptors for crest. So Jemba always calls everything a small crest or a big crest or just crest. Whereas like, you can call it a brow because you can see the side of the road, the road on the other side of it. But you know, there's still a rise in the road and you want to note it so that it's not a detail that you're seeing and not hearing about, because that can really throw a driver's mental game off is like seeing something and they didn't hear about it first. Right. They, they want to make sure that everything that they see, they've heard about it beforehand. So yeah, when I, when I get to ride with a novice, I'm like, okay, this is how you call this. And, you know, I take them through the whole thing of your, your steering angles and everything else to try and describe it. And yeah, that part of it, I, I kind of enjoy. I, I will, you know, basically on the first two or three stages, be the one doing all of the work on the recce where I'm writing the notes while I'm watching the road and he's just kind of listening to me and then I'm, you know, have him start to do some more of it and then, you know, call them back to him. Oh, okay. So that's what that means. And then, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, you know, that crash course in rally driving, which, you know, isn't just performance driving. It's the aspect of hearing notes and then committing to them. Well, now we've got to, uh, talk from, from cars with two seats to uh, rally moto. Yes. <laughs> which is a unique thing. Uh, for those of you that watch uh, maybe the Dakar Rally, you'll understand kind of the concept. Down at Sandblast, NASA events do, or certain NASA events, do offer what's called Rally Moto, where it's uh, a motorcycle. Maybe you can explain it in better detail. But I, I was going to ask first, though, is have you ever been down to Sandblast before? No, I have not. That was my very first time going to Sandblast Rally, period. Wow. So, so yeah. and you haven't driven, you know, competed as a as a driver before in a, in a rally event, right? Correct. Um, I did do a test and tune day, um, a NASA-sanctioned test and tune day at the beginning of January, um, actually at Adam Van Dam's farm, renting his Volkswagen Golf from him uh, to gain some seat time that way. And I put in about 40 miles on their three mile test loop that was, you know, good seat time that I, you know, I wanted to expand into driving at some point and, you know, do a few events driving, even though I still primarily going to want to co-drive because that's, I, I found out I really, really enjoy it. But yeah, I'd never driven in anything at a rally before like this was my very first time being in control of the machine yeah so the reason why i really wanted to get you on this call i mean I, obviously your background stuff it's just crazy but on top of that is yeah. this amazing press on regardless story <laughs> for your sandblast event yeah because it, it was press on regardless from the beginning just getting down there and and i'll just hand off to you to tell us the story because man <laughs> you name it it happened to you and you still made it to the finish. Yes. So um, I have a Suzuki DRZ400S, 
And uh, that bike has kind of a special place in my heart. It was the first uh, motorcycle that I ever rode on. My uh, my uncle had one when I was about 10 years old and I rode on the back of it and just kind of was captured with it. And I had gotten it last summer um, in about the middle of June and just ripping around on it. I had a lot of fun. And then I had gone to Black River Stages um, last fall with Brian Bollinger. And there was two guys there on Rally Moto. It's one of the other events that NASA will let you do Rally Moto on. And I watched them and I was like, man, that looks like such a blast. Like I've got a bike for it. Like the DRZ is a perfect platform, I think, to to go and do that on. You know, I want to go do a, a Rally Moto event this next year. Like I got to do one. And so I started researching a little bit. I was like, okay, Sandblast Rally is the one that everyone goes to. Like they usually get at least 25, 30 rally moto entries. And like, it's, it's just the big thing. All right, cool. So sign up for that. So did all that. And then basically did almost no prep to my bike other than just making sure the oil was changed and everything was good on it. Like, you know, had air in the tires and like, okay, let's, let's go rip around on it. Like it only had about 1400 miles on it. It was almost a brand new bike. So there wasn't anything really to do on it other than that. So we were going to tow down with my partner, Maya's car. She's a Ford escape and we were going to make a stop in Greenville, South Carolina on our way over uh, to where the rally headquarters is in Chera. And you're coming all the way from Michigan. So that's how many right. total hours to get down there? Um, just from Grand Rapids area down to Greenville is a, a touch over 12 hours if you don't stop driving ever. And we had two, two dogs with us in the back that we had to let out for bathroom breaks and stop for fuel and everything else. Like it's, it's a long drive. We left Grand Rapids a little bit later than we anticipated and planned on, but we made it out and had borrowed a trailer from a friend's, you know, mom that, you know, didn't use it or anything. And I was like, all right, let's go. And we make it to Angola, Indiana. And while we're driving down the highway, um, all of a sudden I, I look down, it's like 1am and the car just like loses power. And I looked at the dash and it says transmission is not in drive. I was like, what? And then I look over and the tachometer says zero RPMs. I was like, Oh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm on the highway. There's like no traffic. So I just start to like you know, turn off to the side. And there was a, fortunately like an exit ramp right there. So immediately started pulling onto that shifted the transmission into neutral, turned the key off, turned the key back on and started the car again. And it started right back up. I was like, okay, so I start to push on the brakes, no brakes at all. Like it is like, well, it was like boosted brakes without the booster. And that's exactly what it was, was the vacuum pressure was completely gone. So then I'm trying to you know stop this car without boosted brakes and it's like leg pressing 300 pounds and we get the car stopped, open the hood, can't find anything wrong. There's no vacuum leaks. There's nothing. I was like, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm already super tired. It's 1 a.m. Like I, it was like, well, I had the discussion. We're like, we could drive back home. It's about three hours. And then we can drop the motorcycle and trailer off, put everything in my car and just go down to Greenville because the other reason we were going down was for Maya's dad's birthday, um, which was going to be the following day. So we were still going to make it for that, but wouldn't be able to do the rally. And I said, well, let's try this. If we drive for an hour and the engine doesn't do anything else weird, we'll keep going. If it shuts itself off again or does anything like that again, we'll turn around and try to make it back home. Did the brakes start suddenly start working again? Or were you just going to kind of chance it and shift down and stuff? I mean, I was just going to leg press 300 pounds is what I was going to do. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. Un unboosted brakes suck. As you will learn through, as the story progresses, I am maybe a little bit stupid. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm noticing this uh, what in the morning thing is a trend here, too. Yeah, it kind of happens a lot with rally. So start driving brakes are still gone but 
the car doesn't shut off again. So we make it all the way down to Greenville, unload the bike, get everything situated, go and do all this stuff for her dad's birthday. And we're like, we'll figure out the car after this. Well, I had to run to the cycle gear store and, you know, pick up a, um, a couple things that I needed. I'd forgotten to bring gloves, which are kind of a big necessity. <laughs> if you're riding and racing on a motorcycle, forgotten to grab those. And so I was, ran over there and while they were, while I was over there, they took the car to the Ford dealer. Ford dealer says, uh, your car is screwed. Like it is bad. Turns out it was um, a vacuum pump that had failed. And, um, if you run without that running, well, that shares an oil feed with the camshaft and like metal particles that had you know blown apart inside the vacuum pump can go into the oil they're like you know well we'll check the oil when we get back to the house and then you know see if we can find a new vacuum pump for it and we'll be fine the next day was all of the kind of boring stuff as far as the rally is concerned for you know for the most part so we had to do registration tech inspection and you know a, a park expo say that evening and there was a shakedown stage as well i was like well none of this is really important for you guys to come to you know i'm gonna do i'm gonna ride my motorcycle over to the rally and then i texted some of my friends uh, chris and sarah nonak and said like hey i'm just gonna stay over in Chara tonight do you guys have room or do you know anybody else who has room and they're like well you can sleep on our floor <laughs> <laughs> i was like sold so i put everything that i needed my toiletries and clothes and gopro and everything else in my backpack bungee corded it to the tail of my motorcycle and then rode from Greenville all the way over to Chara, which is three hours. And in that three hours, uh, I ran out of fuel twice and had to switch over to reserve fuel while I'm on the highway, like reach down and flip the switch over to switch to reserve and then take the next exit to fill up. Made it all the way over there, got to registration, did all my stuff, went over to tech inspection. Tech inspector's like, hey, where's your med kit? And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Didn't bring the med kit. He's like, well, you've got everything else that's important. Can you just run over to, um, like, there's a Walmart right over there. Here's the list of things that needs to be in it. Can you just go pick a med kit up? And then he's like, I'll check in the morning at Park Expo. You'll be fine. So I was like, okay, let's let's do this. I ride over to Walmart, get all my stuff, and then I ride over to Shakedown stage. And I after, when I get there at Shakedown, it was like, it, it had already been open for well over an hour. And... A lot of people had made a lot of passes on it. It was very, very rutted up, very choppy. The sand was very soft. And I just want to clarify, I haven't ridden my motorcycle on sand before. And there's a reason why they call it a sand blast. Even though these are roads, technically speaking, it gets real soft and rutted after we're pretty much starting the second pass. Have I mentioned before that I think I might be a little bit stupid? (laughs) (laughs) I, I... basically like no motorcycle experience on sand i'd ridden mountain bikes on sand a little bit but that's totally different when your rear tire is like powered um, by an engine so (laughs) i go out there for my first rip down through the shakedown stage and i was not used to what the bike was doing it was walking all over the place rear tires just like would not stay straight and like constantly having to like fight it and trying to roll through these corners and like nothing feels smooth and the ruts are just kicking me all over the place. One corner I went wide on and I just kind of like rode on the edge between the the road and like the little berm of dirt that sits on the side mm-hmm. and found um, in my path uh, another road like intersected with the stage road for shakedown. And uh, there was another berm that kind of like crossed my path in front of me. Uh, so I hit that about 50 miles an hour, not planning to uh, definitely went very airborne 
And, uh, I was, my, my butt was off the seat of the bike and my feet were off the foot pegs at 50 miles an hour. That was a fun experience. Landed it and did not fall down. So I counted that as a win. And then basically the fastest that I felt comfortable pushing up to, even though there was some super long straightaways was about 60 miles an hour. That was like all the faster. I was like, I don't, I don't like this. This is really unstable. And I got to the end of the shakedown and I was like, I'm not doing that again. All it's going to do is just make me more afraid. I'm not going to get more comfortable on the bike riding on that because it's so torn up. It's so much worse than what the stages are going to be. It's just going to mess with my head if I go and do that again. So you're getting ready for, for the actual rally to start now. How do you have like a uh, kind of notes for those that understand rally moto? <laughs> so pretty much everybody else, except for me, have a roll chart. It's a two and a half inch wide strip of paper that sits in a little case and you turn a little dial on the side and they give you tulips, like a tulip rally mm -hmm. that are describing the course up ahead, major corners, intersections, all of that stuff. And it's also your transits between the stages. So everyone else has one of the little, you know, clamps that sticks to their handlebars and you just turn the dial when it gets you know, gets past your neck thing. I did not have that. I had nothing except for just my eyes and my cell phone on my handlebars. So it's follow the ruts from everybody else and, and, and hope that's the direction it goes. But what makes Sandblast actually also a challenge is they'll not only reverse the stage, they'll actually use part of one stage and then, oh, we're going to make a left turn here now for the next run or, yep. or something like, you know, they've changed it up a little bit that way before in the past. Yeah, I had not bothered to go and buy a roll chart thing because... I just didn't bother to ask anybody about whether or not those were provided or not. I'd seen those at Black Herbie stages and I was like, oh, like this is a rally thing. Like it must come with your thing. Just like we get rallies safe for other rally cars, you know, and they just lend them out to you. No, uh, they did not have that. I had done my due diligence on a lot of other things, like how to safely ride the bike on sand by talking to um, like Chris Nonak, who has done uh, Sandblast on a DRZ before. I also talked to Perry Seaman, who is the chairman and, and head of NASA Rally Sport, um, who used to run um, course opener for Sandblast Rally on a DRZ. Like just talked to a bunch of people. I talked to my uncle who used to race motocross and had the DRZ that I rode on for the first time. Talked to everyone that I could about like, here, how do I ride this? on sand safely and try to go fast. I did all that stuff so that I wouldn't crash. I just also did not have notes. <laughs> then, uh, you know, we, I, I did my first pass of shakedown and I just basically Google map my way back to Chara or I think it was at Chesterfield. We had the park expose and sat there. And then I'm on the phone with Maya trying to figure out what's going on with her car. And she's like, Hey, we're not going to be able to make it over to the rally. The car is worse than we thought. And we don't think we're going to be able to make it over in the morning, which sucked for me because she had my gas can. So the DRZ has a two gallon fuel tank. If you are like putzing around at like maybe 55 miles an hour, that'll get you a hundred miles. If you are really ripping on it, it maybe will go like 55 or 60 miles. Total, total miles at a rally is like, close to 200 like it's it's a lot of riding or, or driving too i was like well that's not gonna work started trying to like figure out a solution for fuel too i also had no tools with me because like all of that was in the car so i had no tools no fuel no notes everything's just gotta yeah last minute thrown together and I mean, again you did have that a plan for some of those things just yeah like you have a little bit of a plan but like, how do you react to this? Like this, this is like everything, like your entire safety net is just gone out from underneath of you. Like you have nothing supporting you at all. Chris just kept saying, Oh, this is like Malimoto style for Dakar. And I had to Google that and I was like, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how they do their, what is the, they have the, the couple of stages they link together now and they call it the, um, Oh gosh, what is it? 
uh, basically what it is they have where there's a set of stages that only what you have on the bike can you use and you work on it yourself in this you know when when you get to service none of the crew you know can help you stage yep they have the marathon stage and marathon that's it and it uh, it applies to um, pretty much all classes have to do at least the marathon stage like that malimoto in particular um it is just as what chris is describing they do the entire rally like the everyone else does the marathon stage there right i forgot about that yeah there are a few people there's not a lot that do it but there are some no it's like less than 10 people a year enter as this class you do all of your own servicing on your bike you bring everything with you that you can. You're allowed one tote of stuff to bring, you know, that someone will carry to the, you know, the camp where you're going to be arriving. Um, and that's everything that you have for the entire Dakar rally. This has now become a goal of mine is to do Malimoto at Dakar because <laughs> I'm experienced. I mentioned I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So go back to Chris and Sarah's hotel room. They're like, okay, so we've got a floor and we'll try to find blankets for you. I was like, sweet. Walk into the hotel room. This was like the non-smoking room and it smelled like worse than an ashtray. The smoke detector was hanging from the ceiling and was covered in a plastic bag. And the floor was sticky. And so I was like, oh, I'm really roughing it. So they pulled the runners off the end of the bed, threw those on the floor. And then they went and talked to the hotel and they're like, no, we don't have any extra blankets. So I got one blanket. And one pillow and a floor. And that was what I slept on before I go race on sand for the first time in my life. Make sure you get good rest before a race, you know, good mental you know, state and everything else like that. Go over to the service area where we start from, find out my star position. Nerves are just through the roof. I'm like, okay, like try not to think about that shakedown stage that really, you know, messed with my head. And like, I'm, I'm just, I'm here to finish and like learn about how to do this. And like, I'm just going to like, kind of take it easy but then i'd also knew in the back of my head like really the only way to be stable racing on sand like that is with full power and keeping all your weight over the rear tire because if you if you put your weight on the front tire it's just going to sink into the sand and also it's going to get really squirrely you can kind of glide over some of the bumps and stuff if you kind of you know keep it a little more open right exactly that's the mentality towards it and then just like full power all the time no matter what and i'm like okay well that's just here goes nothing. So get to the first start line and, you know, clutch dumped it in second gear and took off. I had probably two or three pretty big moments on that first stage, like overran a corner because I couldn't get the bike to slow down. I hadn't figured out. I, I was in my mind thinking, OK, because you don't want to stop with the front tire because then it's going to, you know, sink into the sand and whatnot. And like, so I'm going to use rear tire. No, the rear brake locks up the rear tire with like 5% brake pressure and doesn't really do anything. So you still need to use front brakes. And so I like overran like two corners and like was, you know, very fortunate. They were big burned sand and I was able to make it out of it. Okay. Um, I also had like a couple moments where just like on the shakedown stage, I ran right on a corner and kind of riding up against the berm a little bit. And then the one that I rode up against was like not smooth. It was very uneven again, caught pretty big air off of it without, meaning to which don't try to jump a dirt bike if you don't actually mean to do it like you have to like set up for it like have your weight centered and like plan out your landing like there's a lot of things that make a jump safe and i was not doing Mm -hmm. any of those i mean usually you're not intentionally sitting down too to put that pressure on the rear tire and all those things right yeah so 
you know, I, I like the first stage I was like, Oh man, shaking up, but I, I made it through to the end without dumping the bike or anything. And I was like, okay, go to the next stage. And it's even longer than the last one. Oh, I should know. Um, I did actually use the NASA rally sport navigator app for rally moto. I was able to download that and that at least got me through transit. So I didn't get lost on transit, but it was basically useless on stage because you cannot take your eyes off the road at any moment. Like, mm-hmm. like you, you're constantly watching the road surface, watching for obstacles. The surface changes at sandblast like every hundred yards. If you know, and sometimes shorter than that, it's a nonstop, constantly changing surface. Some places it's like loose gravel. Sometimes it's hard packed clay. Other times it's really soft sand. Then we had like crazy water crossings and like, it, it's just nonstop, always changing. I get to the second stage, ran it a little bit cleaner than the first one. No, no issues. Um, actually I did drop the bike on the second stage twice cause it was longer and got into those really soft, squishy, like slow corners and just kind of like tipped over cause I couldn't power through them. My bike only makes like 33 horsepower. So it wasn't, it's not a, you know, screamer, like some of the hundred horsepower bikes that the guys had down there. Right. Well, during both those first two stages, I passed the guy in front of me, which was kind of a shocker to me. Um, I was starting all the way back at 17th in the field out of 22. And I was like, all right, I'm back here with everyone else who's new and never raced on this stuff. Like it should be probably getting passed like left and right. Like I'll probably end up in the back of the field right away. And the first two stages I passed people on both of them. So I was like, oh, I don't feel like I'm going that fast, but maybe I am. Okay. Get into service. Nothing really needed to happen to the bike. Um, I think I just straightened out my like bark buster handguard on the left side of my handlebars because I dropped in at once. And Chris Nonak, who I had stayed with the night before, came over to me. He was the one in charge of the service here. And he goes, uh, well, are you ready to go yet? And I was like, what do you mean? My service time is like, I still got like 10 minutes. He's like, well, as soon as you leave service, he's like, you need to get up in the front of the line. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, uh, good news, kind of. You've been reseated? said so they did a reseed coming out of service and he's like the algorithm he's like we don't know if it's right or not because he's like it's been screwing up a couple of times but the algorithm says that you should be second on the road and i was like no no please no <laughs> and i was like there is like 15 other guys who are who are so much faster than me who have three times the horsepower way more riding experience like no i'm not going that fast and he's like you know what you're probably right he's like let's push you up just a little bit and then We'll see where you at, which, you know, he's like, we made an executive decision. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, I, I, that terrified me to think, oh, I get to go be second on the road. Like, I just fell twice. <laughs> like, right. I'm not that fast, but still was like a, a, a slight little bit of a confidence boost. I was like, OK, I'm going somewhat fast. So then from there, I just started to, like, get more comfortable and really figured out what the bike wanted me to do which was for the most part, keep the throttle wide open, hang off the back of it as far as I can, and then let it just ignore the bike. It's going to do whatever it wants, but it'll still go. And so I did that. And then I started winding it out more and more and more. And uh, a couple of the stages I hit just to touch over 80 miles an hour and was like really starting to get in the groove of things and like quicker shifting and just you know, actually starting to power through corners and slide and kick the rear tire out. And, and then, uh, basically got to the more towards the end of the day. And I was getting really, really tired, like just, just so tired. Cause like I'd never really done this kind of competitive riding before. And so I started making more mistakes. Um, I dropped the bike a couple hot times pretty hard and, uh, ended up bending my handlebars. The left side of my handlebars got bent in from the, the triple tree clamp all the way over probably a good, I don't know, eight, nine degrees. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I just like, I picked the bike back up on stage, looked at it and I was like, huh. 
and it, it had like the the brush guard or the the, knuck, the bark buster guard for that side had also gotten canted up and it was pinching the clutch so i flipped the bike up off the sand and i just started beating on the hand guard right there on the stage and there was a marshal looking at me and he's like what is wrong with this guy? He just like <laughs> drops his bike and then he just starts hitting it. Like <laughs> what's going on? And, um, it's bent, man. It's bent. <laughs> bent. Like I gotta go. So I got the handguard to like push back down enough to where I could like operate the clutch level again. And, and I took off and made it the end of the stage. And then, um, the, the rally moto guys were all like super helpful, lending me tools and giving me advice and everything else throughout the whole day at service. And, um, we already came up with, you know, kind of some sort of plan to, like, we couldn't straighten out the handlebars, but we can at least make everything work right. So then I finished out the last, you know, several stages of the day with bent handlebars. I was going to say, if any of you've ridden a bicycle, even with your hands tilted, you know, and that's straight, that's not a comfortable position to be in. No, I will say also when I bent the handguard up and like, it, it was still like kind of touching on the clutch lever. So I finished off the rest of that stage without using the clutch once to shift because like, I just, I, I really didn't want to like get it stuck. I still hit like 82 miles an hour after dropping my bike that hard. Clearly I wasn't like here to slow down or quit. Got everything situated. Went out and did the last few stages so tired you know my muscles are just like cramping up especially my right forearm which is where all your grip strength on your throttle is at um was just like knotted up and just so tense drop the bike one or two more times nothing crazy but you know end up getting to the last stage going okay i can do this finished it made it to the end and then it was just like this massive sigh of relief it was like i shouldn't have been able to do that everything else uh, like this entire situation i should not have just finished this race it just shouldn't have happened. Most people would have just said, well, the race isn't happening. I'm pulling out. Not ideal conditions. Don't feel well prepped. Don't feel ready. They're just going to quit. Also, something else that I forgot to mention earlier on, because I had ridden my motorcycle to the rally and I didn't have a tire pump with me, I was running about 20 PSI of air pressure in my tires. Um, for anyone who's raced on sand, um, what you should be running is between like 8 and 12 PSI. I say that's way too high. Yeah. Too high. So I'm trying to race on like everyone else has a you know a nice squishy contact patch and i'm trying to race out there on pizza cutters effectively <laughs> there's like no grip so i did the whole race on 20 psi of air pressure in my tires front and rear you know in retrospect i probably could have dropped them and borrowed a tire pump from somebody else to air them back up for the ride home but like that was i was like that's my mentality is like I'm, I'm here to just finish this race like i'm determined to just finish and then so i did i made it to the end and it was just like Everything was against me and I still pushed through because in the back of my head was always that, that rally like mantra of press on regardless, no matter what happens, no matter what goes wrong, everything can go wrong. And as long as you can still get your vehicle to move, you keep going, you don't quit. So I just, that's what I did. I've mentioned I'm maybe kind of stupid. <laughs> maybe a few times. But, you know, I, I think what I like also about us, the story is, first of all, just everybody that's been sending their well wishes and, and, and excitement for you to to make it to the finish on this one, uh, following your story as as your as it was happening. I don't know. I just how, how did it feel when you got to the end, though? It's like, I, I mean, yeah, you did this huge thing and then you still have to actually go home at this point. Yeah, that's the thing. Like I still had no no tow vehicle, no trailer or anything there with me at, at Chara. Like I had to ride my motorcycle back to Greenville just to get it back to where my and her family were, you know, it, it was, I was still very much a hundred percent on my own this entire time. So I knew like the major battle was behind me 
that was a huge sigh of relief. There was also still a bit of the dread of, I got three hours of riding back that I got to do the next morning. It was just a, a huge mix of emotions, like, uh, you know, really indescribable. Just this massive sense of satisfaction of like, I just finished this thing. Like, I didn't check times once throughout the day. I didn't care. I don't care what position I'm in. All I want to do is make it to the end of this rally because that is the accomplishment for me. It's my first time competing on a motorcycle. First time at this rally. First time on the surface. All I want to do is just finish. So that was my goal the whole time was just keep on pushing, not quit, not let the like little gremlins in the back of my brain go, okay, well, here's the perfect time to like call it quits because it's too hard. No, I'm going to just keep going, keep going and keep trying to like improve my riding so that I'm faster, safer, more predictable, better able to, you know, handle corners and, and really just push the bike to its limits. So like I said, uh, um, I found out or I, I hit about 81 or 82 miles an hour on the bike on my, you know, crazy high tire pressures. Uh, I found out that the, the bike actually gears out in fifth year at 85 miles an hour on dry pavement. So you're doing near max. Near max on this bike. On sand. On sand. In ruts. With the higher pressures. <laughs> I had my first time doing this rally. <laughs> Back to your earlier statement. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe I'm a little bit stupid. <laughs> um, so I guess, uh, I, I, you know, I'd gone into this thinking I was going to be at maybe like 60% commitment. Uh, apparently I was giving it everything I had and... And that got me through the finish. And how did you finish? I, I'm trying to remember. I ended up finishing 14th overall out of 22. And I came in fourth in my class in the Rally Moto Dakar class. Wow. Congratulations. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Would you do it again? Uh, dude, I'm signing up for every Rally Moto event I can now. Like that's like I'm I'm hooked. Like this is it's a whole other aspect of rally that I get to be addicted to now. Like I mentioned within the next 10 years, I really, really, really want to do the Dakar rally on a bike in the meantime to get ready for that. I want to keep doing as many events around here that I can and, you know, in the States and then, um, you know, maybe try for like the mint 400 or Baja 1000 or something like that on a bike. I was going to say, yeah, go out in the desert Southwest and get a yeah. lot of good sand experience. Exactly. Like those are, you know, smaller events like, you know, Baja 1000, oh, that's a thousand mile rally. Well, it's a lot shorter than the Dakar. So <laughs> yeah, right. Dakar rally will have like <laughs> six to 700 miles in a single day sometimes, which is just insane. Yeah. 300 of it at competition and then another, uh, you know, 400 yes. that you're having to do as on your bike commuting. Yes. Yeah. And it's weeks long. Like it's not a day or, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of days. It's, it's a, it's a huge, huge thing. Absolutely. We're going to do it again. Now I really want to find all the trails that I can practice riding on around here and yeah, now I'm already looking to like drop 30, 40 pounds out of my motorcycle if I can and just like improve it in, in a bunch of different ways. Not going crazy with the power yet because I still want to just get really comfortable with the, the power that I have before I try to add more because um, I'm not completely stupid. Yeah, F fix the nut behind the handlebars first. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and seat time is the most valuable uh, racing experience that you can have. Um, you know, seat time is worth far more than engine upgrades or suspension upgrades or anything else like that. Like it's it's just that's the the magic ingredient is just experience seat time. And meanwhile, while you're bored, you've got a full schedule of rallies that you're going to be co-driving for. So you know, obviously, yeah, no, you know, nothing going on. When I can fit them in, uh, you know, I might be gone here or there for you know five days to. You you know, Oregon or Maine or Ohio. Like, All right. Well, we'll correct you. Oregon. It, it's pronounced Oregon. You know what? Sorry. I have, to, I have to give you a bad time. Let you have that. Yes. It, I'm a native. You talked about being a native of where you're from. So, you know. Yes, it's true. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. So there's only a couple other rally moto events that I can do with NASA. Um, I really want to 
try and find other, you know, hair scrambles or other things to do. Just again, continue getting seat time on my bike, getting more comfortable, um, upgrading a few things here and there. Already got new handlebars, you know, that it came in to replace the bent ones and, you know, a few different upgrades here and there. Um, really just more race oriented parts. Um, I actually got the Travis Pastrana bend, uh, contour bars from pro taper. I had to get his stuff on my bike cause he always raced Suzuki's as well. So yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't do anything halfway. Uh, it seems I don't have like a low speed setting or even a medium speed setting. I just kind of full commit and that's where I live. So there is man. Wow. What a story. Well, on to a couple of questions I've been asking my uh, guests this year. So three kind of common questions. I I stole this from another podcast I listened to, and it's kind of interesting to get the different answers. Whatever order you want. How about uh, most influential book or or favorite author or whatever? Favorite music, whether it's to keep your driver happy or when you're on... uh, When you're you're riding that uh, motorcycle all the way down. And favorite movie. Okay, so uh, favorite book... That's a tough one. I, I do love reading. I honestly don't know if I could name a specific favorite. Um, I really enjoy like some of like J.R.R. Tolkien stuff um, and I really love C.S. Lewis, but for different reasons. C.S. Lewis is a phenomenal storyteller and J.R.R. Tolkien is a phenomenal world builder. He's not great at telling stories. The Lord of the Rings movies are wonderfully told stories and they're based off of very dry books. Yeah. There's certain parts of the books that are amazing, but man, they're long. They're long and and, and you're right about the world building. It is so inherently detailed. I mean, you can visually see everything that's there that he created, but it takes a long time to build it up, doesn't it? Yeah, a long, long time. So, yeah, I guess some of that um, fantasy realm kind of stuff, but also things that have metaphors and allegories for you know current day things, both uh, Lewis and Tolkien um, love to use their books as a way to tell stories about the worlds that they lived in and experienced on a day-to-day basis. So I like looking for those parallels and I'm a pretty big fan of uh, a few other like, you know, dystopian type novels and, and things like that. But George Orwell kind of comes to mind. I love his work. I can see definitely the adventure thing though, uh, with you know yeah. Tolkien and, and, and C.S. Lewis. I mean, you're definitely an adventurist uh, doing all this rally stuff. So it kind of fits. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely parallels there for music. I, I'm actually a musician myself. I grew up in a very musical family. My mom was a piano teacher and my dad was a band teacher. So I started piano when I was six years old and then picked up guitar when I was 11, trombone when I was 12, taught myself drums and bass after that. So I play five instruments and uh, have a trained singing voice. Um, I was in choir all through high school and went to state vocal music competition in the works. Like I I was, thought I was going to be a musician for a living. That was legitimately what I was going to go to college for. My brother actually did go that route, has his master's in trumpet performance with a specialty in jazz and is now the lead trumpet player. I got to give a little shout out to my brother, uh, lead trumpet player for the president's own band in Washington, D.C., the Marine. I was hoping you were going to mention that because that is such a cool story. Yeah. Um, my brother has worked so, so hard and just has really impressed us all with his dedication and his skills and everything else that he has poured into it. So that maybe kind of says a little bit about um, the the values that my parents instilled in us, you know, for the dedication and perseverance and everything else that, you know, it, it made him into a great trumpet player. And for me, it, it made me, you know, be able to finish rallies that shouldn't be finished. <laughs> so, um, my sister is a phenomenally talented uh, ballet dancer. She has since no longer does ballet, but she was a, a world-class ballerina when she was still dancing back in high school. So yeah, there's a lot in our, in our family of just like a lot of that kind of spirit of 
you don't stop. You just keep pushing. You keep pushing your own boundaries, your own limits, finding the next level that you can reach. And and I got to give my credit all of that to my parents. Like they've they supported everything that you guys did. Exactly. Like they they really they my parents like were such a great example for me. Um, like sacrificed so much to be able to give us opportunities to go do so many different things and get us different experiences. Like we were a single income family, and my dad was a teacher like that alone should be, you know, all you need to know about, you know, if you live in America, you know what teachers are paid here. And they did all of that for us to be able to make sure we still had every opportunity to, to grow and gain experiences and explore the world around us. And to just, like I said, keep pushing our own boundaries, keep trying to find the next thing that we can achieve. So huge shout out to my parents, Eric and Darla. Love them very much. Now, as far as music goes, that's back to the original question. Mm-hmm. I listen to a little bit of everything, except I cannot stand modern country music, um, particularly stuff like Florida Georgia Line that can uh, that can go burn. So really, I kind of tailor my music interests and, and listens in the car to whatever my driver is feeling at the time. If you check out my Instagram, you'll see uh, under my Recce Adventures tab, uh, every now and then I'll drop a, uh, a Rickroll in there on them. I <laughs> Comment. I was uh, doing recce with uh, one of my drivers, um, Ryan Prisbilkowski at New England Forest Rally last year. We're doing recce in the middle of a stage and just all of a sudden, never going to give you up, never going to let you down. <laughs> and he just looks over and over, he's like, seriously? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So um, other times I'll, I'll just bust out like Britney Spears or Taylor Swift or just whatever, like just so random. Personally, I really like a lot of uh, heavier music, a lot of metal EDM stuff. That's really heavy. Um, that's kind of my, what I love to play on guitar the most is, uh, you know, a lot of heavier metal stuff. But um, at the end of the day, like I appreciate pretty much all music um, as long as it is musical. And then my favorite movie is uh, Pixar's The Incredibles. That one holds a really special place in my heart. Um, in part because of the soundtrack, it's just a brilliant jazz soundtrack, um, which was my favorite thing to play on trombone back in high school. It was jazz. And um, it's one of the only Pixar movies that doesn't f- start the entire mo- like movie off on like the death or loss of a loved one. Um, <laughs> it seems like pretty much all the other Pixar movies start with someone dying or, or somebody leaving. So that's a good point. Yeah, I guess I never really thought of it that way. Yeah, um, there's quite a lot of like articles written about how like Pixar has mastered the art of telling stories based on loss that really creates that immediate emotional connection. Like you think like, you know, up, like they tell this heart wrenching story in like three minutes about it. The first 10 minutes of up is some of the best film making storytelling. Yes. Ever. I mean, it really, it's so impactful. That first 10 minutes, you will go from laughing to crying. Yeah, it just it has everything in just that ten minutes, and then the story just goes from there. Yeah, that's the that's the like setting for the movie yeah. is it's just just pulling at your heartstrings. Like, oh, I didn't sign up for feels today, but here I am. The Incredibles is like that's my sweet spot. That's my go to. Like, it, it's there's just something magical about that movie. I can quote it every single scene. It's just it's great. I have a lot of other favorites very high on the list. Most of them things like Alien and Chronicles of Riddick and a lot of really nerdy sci-fi stuff. But I always keep coming back to The Incredibles. Well, again, it's it, good storytelling, you know. Yeah. And uh, like you said, with a good soundtrack to go with it. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I found is for me, it's it's the music with the movie. Yes. Is what's so critical, right? Is 
if you really want to make that emotional impact, it's got to have the right music to go with it. And it does. Pixar has done that very well. So with some other films, mm-hmm. some of them can have really great acting and all that stuff. But if it, the music isn't right for that moment, it kind of falls flat. Exactly. Yep. So who are you co-driving with for Hundred Acre Wood? I am co-driving with Nathan Coulter again. I'm very, very excited. Um, Nathan has become one of my closest friends, um, and he is who I am riding with the most this year. I also rode with him the most last year. Um, he and his wife, Harper, are just phenomenal people, and they really, really understand the spirit of rally. At Southern Ohio Rally last year, we had a like a pretty decent off where we bent a control arm up pretty good and had the tire rubbing against the inside of the wheel well. Had that all changed out in a 30-minute service, and he, he's put a lot of time and development into himself as a driver where he started off with this 1990 Subaru legacy that he bought off of Chris Martis, another friend of mine. And it had a stock 2.2 liter engine in it, like no performance parts whatsoever. And it had 280,000 miles on it. Like this thing was tired. Um, run that through a super drivetrain and you maybe on a good day have like 60 wheel horsepower. And, you know, compared to my dirt bike that weighs 320 pounds, you know, you have this 3000 pound car with a full cage in it that's making around the same power, uh, around double that power. <laughs> so he started off in that and he's just over time continually built up the car and developed it found the weak points and really worked on himself as a driver a lot. Um, he did these upgrades in the correct order, I think, which is um, the very first thing you ever update on a rally car and upgrade is safety equipment. You start with uh, seats and belts, and um, he put in some really nice halo uh, containment seats that I think are kind of should be the standard for pretty much anyone building a rally car now. Hopefully a good intercom, so you don't have to uh, yep. do hand signals. Got a good intercom in the car now. Um, no more hand signals for me. And then he upgraded uh, suspension and um, has good tires on the car, makes sure the brakes are good and everything else like that. So he's got some good Samsonis and suspension on his car. What was interesting is you mentioned like all the stuff that's a, both safety and things that help you stop better yes more than it is about stuff that's adding speed exactly that's the correct order of operations for like improving a rally car is safety first then handling like your your brakes and your suspension and then finally you can start to push more power out of the, the drivetrain um so uh he's been working hard and long on doing a six-cylinder swap into his car so he's got an easy 30 easy 30d specifically that he's putting into his car and uh yeah that should be uh, roughly double the horsepower and over double the torque of what that uh, old EJ22 had. It's finally time. He's, I think he's been past the level of the power output of that car for quite a while as a driver. Um, we were, you know, just riding on the rev limiter for very long parts at hundred acre wood last year and try to shift from fourth into fifth. And the car just doesn't have any guts to pull any further and any faster. Like you actually start to slow down once you get from fourth into fifth and see, so, oh, well, back into fourth and just keep hanging on the rev limiter there. So now we're actually going to have a bit of legs in the car to actually really speed up a lot more, carry more speed through corners. Cause you can actually put power down. There's a lot a lot of improvements made to the car this year, and I'm very excited for it. What, what's the goal? Um, the goal, I think, for for Nathan and I for this year is really to actually start actually caring about where we place in the, at the finish. He went from his first few rallies not finishing at all, got his first finish um, at Show Me Rally in 2019, I believe it was, and then um, just kind of started from there to like, okay, we need to like consistently finish because so for 2020 or. Uh, yeah. So for 2020 was pretty rough. You know, we, we've continually just incrementally improved to where now he's, you know, every single rally that he enters, he's finishing, not having major offs, not having incidents. And now it's, it's improving his driver skill with this new power output. And then also like, and now the car is capable of like 
good finishes. Like we're going to try and push for that and really start to like advance him to where we, we actually care about where we finish instead of just finishing now. And find out uh, where in the order that is and start finding who your competition is. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, riding around with 60, 70 horsepower at the wheels is, <laughs> you know, uh, not exactly competitive, we'll say. Yeah, exactly. Well, excited to see how you guys do. Uh, man, thanks for coming on and, and sharing your story. That's <laughs> it is the ultimate press on regardless. You know, we do hear them from time to time, but but yours just had that little extra something. Yeah. Uh, excited to see. Uh, yeah. How things progress with your your moto skills and also um, you sitting in the right seat. Thank you Shen, uh, so much. I appreciate you for inviting me on, Mike. And uh, this was a big pleasure and uh, looking forward to seeing it at the next rally. All right. Well, uh, welcome to what is the, I think I might be a bit stupid episode <laughs> of the rally cast. Yes. <laughs> Regardless, especially when you're stupid. So, yeah. Well, make sure folks that you follow the rally stash on Instagram. You always do some great posts um, just from the rally family being out there, whether it's even hanging out with uh, volunteers to, you know, being a co-driver, hanging out with folks and, and just showing what a good time rallying is. Dude. Have fun. Yeah. Good to talk to you. Um, yeah. Any rally that you come to and you see me at, it's it's impossible to miss me. I got like the big bushy beard and waxed up handlebar mustache and long curly hair. Like just come say hi. More than happy to talk to you. Um, more than happy to share my experiences. If you're interested in getting in rally, like I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to give you some pointers and direction, things that I've had, you know, people share with me about their experiences. Like I, I want to share this my love for this sport with everyone that I can. Um, I've already had multiple people that through talking to me are now just addicted to rally too. And like, that's what they want to do because like, that's, that's what this sport does to you. It's, it's worse than like crack cocaine. It's, it's <laughs> like the worst addiction. It's far more expensive though. Cocaine too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Safer marginally, uh, but, <laughs> but also more yes. expensive. Uh, <laughs> Yes. Um, but yeah, uh, come say hi, come follow me on Instagram at the rally stash and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast and thanks for having me on Mike. I appreciate it. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. Sounds good. Know what I hate? Big, bulky, underperforming batteries. Lighten your load with performance battery from Melee Design Firm. They have time-tested solutions for your race car, rally car, or even your daily commuter. Make sure you check us out at MeleeDesignFirm.com, a proud sponsor of the Open Paddock Rallycast since 2020. And thank you to our supporters, Melee Design Firm and Oz Rally Pro. And remember, if you'd like to help support the Open Paddock Rallycast, we've got a donate button now on our website, OpenPaddock.net. We'll be back soon with a new episode. Until then, I'm your host, Mike Shaw. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.